Okay, welcome back to the podcast, episode two. The podcast name, as you would have discovered, is The Marketing Agency. And this specific podcast is Englishman in New York with myself, Nick Cook, uh, co-founder of The Go Agency. And me, Will Hamnett from Jungle Creations. How are you, Will? I'm big news this week. Huge news, Nick, huge news. Um, we somehow, <laughs> we've done it. We, we've reached the, the true zenith of, of what we're looking to achieve. We are, in fact... For those of you who don't know, um, the UK's number one um, business podcast um, in just Madness. 24 short hours, I think it was, to get to the top. I think we're above someone that you were uh, being quite rude about on episode <laughs> one, Gary Vaynerchuk, Yeah, most, your hero. Most importantly, my, not my hero, Nick. <laughs> Certainly not my hero. But uh, yeah, we, we've, we've managed to, to um, yeah, go far above and exceed our expectations in, in, in just one episode and yeah, leaving Gary V in our wake, which is super excited. I, I'm even starting to think that there might might be life in our grand plans for merchandise and a line of t-shirts, mugs, etc. <laughs> so um, all exciting stuff. We've, we've, we've made it in the UK. I think the US is next. So um, if you are listening in the US, tell your mates. Um, and this episode, I think we've got a really, really fascinating guest someone who's achieved massive success in the US market. So do you want to just give us a quick intro, a bit of background, Will? Yeah, I certainly can, Nick. Um, Kyle Widrick is our, our next guest, um, currently uh, owner and founder of Win Brands Group, which is a, a collection of beloved direct-to-consumer brands, including Homesick Candles. Um, he's an extremely successful e-commerce entrepreneur um, and also Jungle Client, um, which I'm going to try not to dwell too much Hang on. Hang on a minute. I'm going to pull you <laughs> off on that. Yeah. <laughs> Rule number one, broken. You certainly can. He's a Jungle Client, but that's not relevant. The, the interesting thing is, and the important thing is, he's worked with some incredible people, including billionaire venture capitalist Chris Birch. Um, he has invested in some fascinating um, and truly successful businesses, um, the likes of Hims and Thrive Market. He has uh, started and sold his own agency, Brand Value Accelerate. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, he's he's now at the helm of uh, his latest venture, which is, is WinBG. And, and, and most importantly, really, um, for this episode and, and for the pod in general, is that he's he's got a great story. So it's definitely not one to miss. Excited to get going. Right, let's jump straight in. I'm serious. Move to a new city. We're moving to New York. Okay, I should probably buy a place in the city first. You're here for business or pleasure? Hopefully both. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, Carl. Will, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a warm day in in New York City. The weather's getting better. I'm feeling um, yeah, excited to get the second episode um, of you know what is the the UK's number one business pod up and running. And it's great to have Carl on board. Carl, <laughs> Carl, whereabouts are you in the states right now? Love it. Yes, I'm in Sag Harbor, so about two hours east of New York City. Very nice. Um, Long Island. Am I right in saying? That's right. Long nice. Exactly. Um, I think we should just start at the beginning um, of your journey, Kyle. Um, we've got intros out the way and all that sort of stuff. And we'd love to just dig into uh, a little bit, bit about your journey and a bit about your personal life. And um, yeah, I guess we think the best place to start for it is um, in a small town in upstate New York with no stop signs, I think is what you've described it to us as. So no, no uh, stop lights. No stop lights. Got there it. are stop signs. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yes. Technicality. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, you know, think uh, could be in Texas, could be in Alabama. Happens to be in upstate New York. 
very small town, 3,000 people, no stoplights. Um, you know, my high school growing up was the same exact place, the same exact school as my kindergarten. And our uh, graduating years were, you know, roughly 60, 75 people. So just a small, small town, small town feel. Um, my family grew up there for generations. My parents' parents were there. My parents were there. They stayed there. I would say, you know, of my graduating class, probably 50% went to uh, some sort of community college. 25% went to some sort of uh, university and 25% uh, didn't go to college at all. So it was an interesting place to grow up. Uh, for me, I grew up one of four, uh, all boys. So super fun, kind of early childhood, uh, a lot of shenanigans, a lot of exploration. Uh, I grew up on a, um, a house where we had 12 acres. So we truly did a lot of you know, outdoor exploration, myself and my brothers. Um, but yeah, listen, I think for me, a lot, of, a lot in life comes down to perspective and growing up in such a small town and then transitioning to living in New York City and, and working for who I worked for and then ultimately starting my own business. Uh, it's a massive view on just different ways to look at life. And did you, um, you've obviously gone on to achieve lots of different things in different areas from, you know, VC, starting and growing your own agency to now Win Brands Group. Did you always want to, I assume you always were entrepreneurial and wanted to be an entrepreneur, but did you have a sort of end goal in sight early on? Yeah, it's interesting. My, my dad, uh, early days, had a job. He worked at a factory. Actually, it was a paper factory. And he left that job to start his own business. And he started, um, it was a building business. So he would build houses um, and, you know, as a small operation, had a few people that worked for him. I started working with him for him when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. Um, I was the kid who always had like six jobs. You know, I was cutting lawns in my spare time. I worked the overnight shift at the PNC food shop. Uh, I worked at McDonald's. I did road construction. Um, early on, for some reason, I really always liked having money in my pocket and I didn't like asking my parents uh, for cash. So I always had a job and that carried all the way through college. You know, uh, my parents did what they could to help us through college, but I paid a, a good portion of that myself and took on loans for the rest. And, um, you know, so through college, I was doing deliveries. I was working at the library. So it just became kind of part of my DNA as a, you know, parallel hustle of like, do what you have to do to make cash, then do what you're passionate about, which for me was starting businesses. And before I ever got to, my first real success, um, you know, I had 10 or 12 businesses that really went sideways, didn't go anywhere, but kind of paved the path towards where I wanted to be. And gave you those, I guess, vital lessons to get to where you are now. What were, um, I know we know your kind of first, I guess, big break, so to speak, was uh, working with, with Chris Birch. Um, prior to that, you talk of obviously there being 10 or 12 businesses that fell by the wayside. Um, are you able to, I guess, share any of those? Are they kind of fresh in the memory? I, I mean, I'm sure you remember every single one for each of their... What was the yeah, worst which... business you set up? <laughs> <laughs> I could tell you're going to laugh. Um, I, you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're, when you're just trying to make it work, right? So I, I got it in my mind that I wanted to patent something. So I started mm -hmm. looking at 
what I thought was a super useful device. So I hired a patent attorney in New York City that was super expensive. Right. Went through all the renderings and the drawings. And what it was, was if you were going to the gym and you didn't want to throw like your suit in a gym bag, you could have this contraption that would take your suit and effectively fold it so it didn't wrinkle. So it's not a terrible idea, but I spent like $6,000 like patenting this idea, this concept without ever thinking through the next steps of if I really were going to turn this into a business, uh, there was so much more that had to be done. So in retrospect, you know, total waste of cash, but I still have the drawing somewhere of what that business was. I had a promoting business. I had a summer share rental business. Like I was truly um, a hustler of sorts, I would say, in just trying to make something work. And before Birch and before ultimately I had the agency, the first business that I had a little bit of success with was called Postgrad Apartments. And Postgrad Apartments was effectively a lead generation business where we would spin up college ambassadors at you know 100 universities across the US and get them to generate leads back to us. We would then sell those leads to brokers in the main cities, New York, Chicago, LA. Um, and we made enough money there to just get by and I had had that as a side hustle. And we ended up selling it to a competitor of ours uh, and making a very little bit of money, but no, no real win to speak of. And I'm assuming that was that business as with, you know, the money that you had to get and, and, and source for this contraption to fold your suit. Um, I really want you to send us the blueprints. I'd love to see that product and actually what it looks like and be able to visualize it. I'm, I'm assuming it was the, the hard work and the graph that you're putting in at places like McDonald's that gave you, a, you know, the base amount of money you needed to get these kind of ventures off the ground. Or was it the case that you were, you know, beg, borrow and stealing off family and friends like I guess a few entrepreneurs that we know had done back, you know, back in the day. Yeah. Listen, I think, uh, I always knew I would turn the corner at some point. I had that conviction. Um, I think my mom in particular, you know, raised us with a very high level of optimism that anything could happen, that you could achieve whatever you wanted. Uh, couple that with the fact that I don't think my parents, maybe based on where I grew up or maybe just based on who they are, they did not put any big expectation on us. You know, if I had stayed local, knock on a university and like worked up the ranks at the local grocery store, that would have been a success story for them. They didn't expect me to do anything of any, um, you know, big substance. So uh, it allowed me not to ever worry about failure. I didn't have any concern about it not working out. I just kept trying, kept iterating, kept trying. And I think that's a big part of getting there is, you know, being comfortable with failing, at least initially, but learning from those each and every time and ultimately getting to where you want to be. And I will say, working as many jobs as I did, like I gave you a few, there's dozens of others. Like I had a job, literally upstate is big on hunting, like deer hunting. Right. I had a job where I was one of five guys that were cutting up the deer as they came in. We would like cut them up into steaks. <laughs> Doesn't get more glamorous than that, does it? Exactly. So you do get a you get an idea of what jobs you don't want to do uh, for a living. I'm assuming this and is it, one of them. <laughs> this is right at the top. Um, so that gives you a good amount of motivation just to keep putting in the hard work. One thing that I think is um, kind of unique to Will and I is moving to New York obviously as Brits, but our first guest, Danny, talked about her 
desire growing up in Florida and going to college in Alabama and really seeing New York as the kind of shining light of potential success uh, and entrepreneurship. What was it like? What age were you when you moved from upstate New York to the big city? And what was that like? Or was it not a big deal? Because relatively, it's not that far away. Yeah, it was, it was a massive deal. Like I, I always felt like I was playing catch up. And what I mean by that is um, my first step out was I went to Syracuse University, which is roughly two hours south of where I grew up. And when I got to Syracuse, uh, I was surrounded by kids who grew up in New York City, grew up in the suburbs, Westchester, Long Island. Um, I was the guy from upstate who, you know, I had never owned a suit at that point. Like I was just very much a fish out of water amongst my peers. Um, but I, I found it motivating to play catch up quickly and get to that level. Um, so for me, I, I would say once I was at Syracuse and surrounded by a lot of people that became my best friends, the obvious next step was to make it to New York. And my first job out of Syracuse was actually with their number one employer, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And I tracked finance accounting, uh, got hired by them in a very interesting role that I still appreciate today, which was a group called Transaction Services. So we did M&A consulting for large private equity shops like Apollo and Cerberus. And they would hire us to go in and do a very specific task, but really good opportunity for me to hit the ground running in the city with a big corporate job and kind of get used to that life before transitioning ultimately to Chris uh, Birch. Yeah, so let's talk about let's talk about Chris. Um, that sounds like a fascinating period of your life. Um, for those listeners who don't know, Chris Birch is a billionaire, uh, runs his own VC, uh, was had a successful. I guess, apparel entrepreneur originally, and then married Tory Birch, set that business up. That's now worth $3.5 billion. And you worked very closely with him for quite a few years at his fund, right? What was that like? That's right. So I was working at Pricewaterhouse as a, as a you know junior level associate. My boss at the time got hired by Chris Birch to be his chief of staff, or like effectively to run his office. And once she got hired, uh, she pulled me over and hired me as her associate within that you know, family office. Um, fast forward uh, two years, a little bit less than two years, she got fired in very dramatic fashion, was like escorted out and it was a huge deal. <laughs> what did she do? Can you share? Uh, that's, uh, well, there's, a, there's a long story there that involved um, one of our businesses that we had invested in with a friend of Chris and um, you know, she ultimately ended up going to work for the friend, let's say, and leaving right. her post with, with Chris. So it was right. something that came back around full circle, Betrayal. ended up being <laughs> fine eventually, but initially was not great. And what was interesting about that period for me, I remember that day very specifically, um, I was scheduled to travel to China the next day for the first time. So to some people, uh, traveling to China for the first time wouldn't be a big deal. For me, it was. And she literally got fired and he called me into his office. And I'm 100% sure he didn't even know my name at that point. He only knew that I worked for her. So he's kind of like, you, like, come in, we got to chat. And um, so he basically said, you now have the opportunity to step up into a much uh, higher role with her departure. 
And if you can, great. If you can't, you're going to be fired. And so I kind of let that sit in, got on the airplane, flew to China. I was actually uh, doing sourcing for a Chinese medical herb business, like a supplement. We did all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but what I appreciate about my time with Chris, um, you know, first and foremost, is he really would challenge people at a younger age, likely than others would feel comfortable to do more than most thought that they could. And it was truly sink or swim. And for me, I ended up being there seven years and it was a, a tremendous experience um, on all sides, but um, you know, very difficult. I felt like my entire time there, maybe until the last year, year and a half, uh, I was truly drinking from a fire hose, but you know, soaking up all that perspective along the way, which is helpful for me today. Nice work. Why do you think? Oh, oh sorry. On, I, I keep jotting in in front of you. Nick, it's not all about you, is it? This is a new <laughs> podcast relationship, and we need to work on it. Who's the alpha here, Nick? I think it might be you. Um, <laughs> Kyle. But, but, yeah, it's Carl at the end of the day. Um, but Carl, would like <laughs> what, what sort of age were you? In? And an immediate thought that kind of sticks out to me with your trajectory from small town upstate New York to flying to China. I mean, was this your first trip? and you were kind of thrust with all this responsibility or is it that kind of story? It is. Yeah. Listen, my, um, my parents didn't have passports. They didn't raise us with passports. We did not travel. Um, and don't get me wrong. I had the, I had the most incredible upbringing. It was just very sheltered and very local. We took one trip, only one trip ever on an airplane when I was growing up and that was to Florida to go to Disneyland or Disney world, whatever it is. And then coming back on the flight back from Florida, there was incredible turbulence and we all thought we were going to die in like an epic plane crash. And I don't think to this day, my mother has flown since like she refuses to fly. Um, but you know, I got my passport when I went abroad, I studied abroad in Madrid when I was in university. Um, and, but I hadn't really traveled at all. And I think one of the, one of the most unique things about my experience with Chris was he would only allow us to pack a carry on bag. There was no ability to wait in line for your bag at baggage that did not happen, could not happen. There was no time. We could waste time doing that. So I got used to spending, you know, two weeks in China or two weeks in Europe, wherever it ended up being in a, in a carry on suitcase and sort of, you know, allowing, yourself to, to be more free to travel in that way. So China, I probably took two dozen trips to China. We had a big office there. We had about 150 people and we did a lot of sourcing for a lot of our businesses. And you were traveling to very remote places that there was only one place to eat and it was not uh, somewhere that you wanted to eat. So you were packing granola bars in your pockets so that you could eat that rather than whatever they were serving. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a, it was a big deal. And I think, uh, I look back at those times as I was way over my head, but I was learning a ton every day and it truly allowed me to advance my career. I think much faster than I could have anywhere else. Right. And the access I'd imagine you were getting with Chris to, not just the access you were getting to his knowledge, but the access that was coming with his profile and his status as you know, a, a billionaire venture capitalist would have given you exposure. I'm, I'm imagining to some pretty interesting people on the way. There's 
so many rooms you would get put into with, you know, whether it was a self-made billionaire or uh, some, you know, major CEO where Chris, you know, for me in my position, you would walk into the room, you'd meet the person, you're already in awe that you're in a room with this person. It's really wild. Your mind can't quite comprehend. Uh, but then he's putting you on the spot. Like, Kyle, you tell them about this or you pitch them this. So not only were you there, but you had to be there and be very ready to go. Um, so there's some anxiety that comes along with that, mm. frankly. Uh, but you're definitely building muscle memory on how to approach those situations. We had a crazy meeting one day. I'm in the office. And obviously, I'll never forget, uh, you know, a guy walks in, introduces himself to me. And he says, hi, I'm, I'm Kanye. I'm like, oh, yeah, I think I know who you are. I'm, I'm Kyle. Nice to meet you. Um, and it was just a classic day in a classic Chris Birch uh, form in the fact that we ended up in the, in the conference room kind of waiting for Chris. He's a couple minutes late. Comes in. He's all over the place. He's uh, Most people would describe Chris as a force of nature, just a truly unique a uh, very uh, gregarious individual, um, but always uh, thinking on kind of a different level than, than I would say most people are. And we sat down and maybe he didn't know what the meeting was about or who it was, or maybe he did, but he literally had Kanye West um, rapping in the room <laughs> to try to understand who it was. Like, oh, you're a rapper. Have I heard your music? And I think Kanye was so confused that he was there and he knew he was there. And like, does this guy not know who I am? He actually started rapping uh, Gold Digger. And I had all I could do to not burst out laughing. I'm just watching this scene unfold. <laughs> and it ended up being a great meeting and, um, you know, a relationship that carried on. But it's, 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 you know, we used to talk about this all the time, but there's thousands of examples of things that would happen in day-to-day -day life that you could not make up just like ridiculous things with ridiculous people, that became the day-to-day -day norm. I hope that Kanye story ended with you investing lots of money in Yeezy at the beginning. No, unfortunately, that, <laughs> no. that, that would have been That's a better it. outcome. It was, it was in the early days of Kanye, uh, I guess, trying to figure out what he wanted to do in fashion. And, you know, Chris, with his fashion background, he had, you referenced it, but he built and sold an apparel business back in the 80s and 90s called Eagle's Eye. And that was kind of the start to his venture capitalist career. Later days, uh, married Tory and they started the Tory Birch business together. But he had a great reputation in the industry of having success, having a very strong sourcing operation. Um, so Kanye at that time was, was truly just exploring what he wanted to do. It was pre, definitely pre-Yeezy and, and way before what Yeezy is today. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be speaking to us now. Um, and <laughs> you'd probably be hanging out with Kanye. Kanye is the next guest, Will. Well, we can only hope. <laughs> I just had a question about, um, just before we kind of move on from the, the Chris Birch uh, time of your life, what, what were the like, people like that who achieve what he's achieved don't come along that often. What were the key things that you took from him? Um, and who are the other people on this journey who have inspired you or you've learned from? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, I would say in all cases, like something very different. I think a lot of people spend most of their lives trying to be the same as everyone else and fit in. Um, I think people that, that achieve success on that level are very comfortable with being themselves and being outliers and doing something very differently. Uh, for Chris specifically, 
He was obsessed with the consumer, always shopping himself, always picking up product, doing pricing, speaking to customers, trying to understand that psychology, which I've certainly take on, taken on myself now with, with my businesses. Um, and he was, I mean, this doesn't happen in all cases, but he certainly worked an insane amount. It didn't seem like he ever slept. He was out the night before at the restaurant and beyond the restaurant and up the next morning at six. And back in the days of Blackberries, uh, which is dating me now, um, <laughs> he would he would have the rechargeable replacement batteries and he would go through like six batteries a day, always on the phone, always kind of connecting, always moving the ball forward. So I think there's definitely a level of tenacity that you see um, whether it's fashion or Chris was friends with, you know, everyone from Steve Ross at Related, you know, big real estate guy to Ari Emanuel at William Morris. And I remember going to Ari's office every time we would be in LA and Ari was a big bubblegum guy and he had this big cupboard full of bubblegum. And every time we'd go back to his office, there would be like a new invention, a new contraption. It would be like a treadmill and then like a workout thing. So he would be on the phone, on a treadmill, chewing his gum. Um, just like interesting quirks, but all of them share the same kind of tenacity for just winning in whatever that is. Nice. I'm loving the nostalgic uh, flashbacks of Blackberries and bubblegum. Um, it sounds a bit like my, my childhood before I was in, in school, but um, yeah, amazing to hear it, it coming to life in New York. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been awesome to hear about, I guess, the, the early life uh, and this kind of big break that you had with, with Chris Birch and your kind of early footsteps into the world of uh, yeah, VC life and entrepreneurship and, and, and doing business properly and successfully. Um, yeah, far cry from the, the folding suit machine, um, which I've, I still I just love the idea of. Um, but it'd be great to hear, I, I guess, a little bit more about um, that first personal success that you found um, through the Shopify focused agency you built, which was uh, Brand Value Accelerator. Um, which I, I'm imagining, I mean, did that come straight after work with Chris? Was it a, a happy parting or was it a cardboard box like your um, former employee that brought you over from PwC? It was not great. I, I think anytime you work in a family office and you stay there for three, four, five years, in my case, seven years, uh, you become part of the family, you know, for better or for worse. And uh, when I told Chris I wanted to leave, you know, he took it pretty personally. He wasn't uh, happy with that decision. Uh, I wasn't going in to tell him that to try to retrade and make more money or anything like that. You know, I just truly wanted to do something on my own. And I think deep down he could appreciate that, but he he didn't like it because he would have preferred if, if I had stayed and, and continued to work, you know, for him. Um, so I left on not great terms. And all of a sudden I went from working at a, at a billionaire family office where everyone gives you that same respect. Even if you're not Chris, if you're Chris's guy, you kind of get that same respect. Uh, all of a sudden, you don't have that. And what you realize quickly is, you know, arbitrarily, maybe half of the people treat you exactly the same and they still pick up your calls and you're still, you know, on that level with them. And half of them literally write you off because you're no longer associated with the guy that they cared about and uh, you're probably not as relevant to them. So for me, uh, I wanted to start my own business. I didn't know what I wanted that to be initially. I had met a guy uh, along my Chris Birch journey by the name of Dylan uh, Whitman 
and really bright guy, really call it broadly internet focused um, that I had a lot of respect for. So he and I started brainstorming on what we could possibly do together. And he was very hot on Shopify. He's like, this is, this will be the future of e-commerce. This is the platform that will be the winner. And I said, listen, if you have that conviction, I trust you. I was more the business guy. He was more the tech guy. And we got together and before we knew it, we had a few clients and we were on our way. And our first client, um, interestingly, was a guy out of London. You know, we're sitting in New York. A guy out of London, um, you know, hired us for something like $120,000, which for us at the time was huge as our effectively our first engagement. And that put us on our way. And we started down that path. We went all in on Shopify. You know, when some companies were building on Magento and Shopify and Demandware, we were doing Shopify only. And our scope of service was really building and rebuilding websites and then doing performance marketing. So uh, allowing companies to scale their revenue base with us, you know, driving the ads. What year was this that you founded the agency then? Because I assume it was very early on in terms of direct consumer and e-commerce. And I guess it's interesting given the kind of post COVID-19 world we're living in, so many of our clients are, and so many brands in general are kind of panicking about the shift from retail to e-commerce that they're all gonna have to go through. Yeah, this was back in 20, so I left Birch in 2012, 2013. This is 2013, the summer of 2013. Um, Shopify at that time was a couple hundred million dollar business. They were not public. They were private. You know, if you fast forward when Shopify went public, they went public at, I think, 17 a share. The stock is trading today at, I believe, 750 a share. I mean, they've had a ridiculous, ridiculous run for good. And the next few months for them are going to be incredible as well. Exactly. Um, so it was early days back in 2013 and what I would categorize as kind of, uh, V1 of a lot of these internet businesses that I run into today that stood up a website on Shopify, uh, had good success with advertising on Facebook, and were able to emerge as sort of a category leader in whatever category that was. You know, one of our long-term clients, one of our first clients was MVMT watches, movement watches. And, you know, Jake, who was the co-founder and the CEO, uh, still a good friend of mine, and they started about the same time we did in building that business. Awesome. Um, a little birdie also tells me that um, Kylie Cosmetics was a, a client of uh, BVAs along the way. Is that the case? And are there any similar Kanye S stories with um, Kylie? Yeah, we uh, we did work with them. We got very fortunate to work with everyone from MVMT to Kylie Cosmetics to Bolin Branch, Untuck It, Mizzen and Main, all the way up to um, Hallmark and, and Red Bull and P&G. But we, we definitely had a niche within the earlier startup phase, uh, D2C companies. And with Kylie, no crazy stories. I mean, what I can say about their operation, which um, you probably would, would think of, is they're, they're very efficient. They're very smart. They had a small team. Uh, they decided to, you know, set up an infrastructure that was was quite profitable for them. We became one of their, you know, their partners in that. Uh, met, you know, Kylie and the and her mother at the kind of at the warehouse and the and the product uh, center um, at one point. But you know, have to give them a ton of credit for understanding consumer consumer momentum. 
really focusing on product and product quality. I think a lot of times uh, celebrities are misguided in thinking that if you launch a product and just slap your name on it, it's going to sell. And I think you can certainly achieve a very small level of sales doing that. But unless you truly differentiate your product and have a very good product that's sustainable on its own, it's not going to scale. And what she did with the lip kits and effectively creating a new category and leveraging her social media to push that was just pure genius. Interesting. I guess uh, so far the story is obviously fascinating, but seems to have gone relatively swimmingly and smoothly, apart from the couple of uh, failed businesses right at the start. As a uh, another agency founder, I'm aware how much of a roller coaster it must have been establishing that agency and then obviously selling it very successfully um, in 2018. What were some of the hardest moments across this journey or during that period of your life? Yeah, no, I should say back before the agency with the failures, I mean, I ended up personally in a place where I had 25,000 of credit card debt, which was an absurd amount for me to be carrying. And I would literally have to go pitch friends and family, whoever I could find to like give me a bridge loan so that I could keep paying the interest until I could ultimately pay it off, which I did, fortunately. Um, but with the agency, you know, it's, it's, it's such an incredible experience that you all see now. And the fact that you don't know until you know, had I stayed with Chris at the family office forever, I truly would not have had the perspective of what it's like to, to own and operate your own business and everything that comes along with that. And, you know, we started out with two people. We quickly got to five. We quickly got to 10. Ultimately, we were well over 100 people, you know, five years later. But along the way, um, you know, we ran out of cash a couple times. And I remember very specifically having to dip into my limited savings at the time and basically put everything that I had on the line to keep the company afloat. Because if you are operating a company and let's say you have 20 employees, the absolute worst thing that can happen is you miss payroll because then all of your employees are thinking something's up. Maybe they're leaving, you know, that creates a real issue. So to avoid that, you end up dipping into your savings, covering what covers the payroll, but you understand if you don't significantly change the direction of the company in the next month, you're going to be out your savings and out your business. So it's an incredible risk and a risk that, you know, ultimately you really have to take. Uh, but it certainly was not all up and to the right. And I think, you know, we made a few specific changes to our business along the way that really got us on the right path. But, um, you know, one of which was, was really focusing narrowly on Shopify. Um, but we had a couple periods where we effectively ran out of cash. And did you not want to raise money um, or did you did you raise a, a, a number of rounds? We obviously um, at Goat, we uh, didn't raise for the first kind of two and a half years. And similarly, had a few months where we thought, oh, God, maybe we're better off just raising and making our lives a little easier. But you have to back yourself, right? Similar story over here at Jungle. Yeah, so we, we raised a very little, um, I shouldn't say very little. We raised about, let's say, 250000 from effectively a, a friend of mine and... You know, he took a big bet on us at that time and ultimately it paid off really well for him when we sold the business. But, you know, for whatever reason and, and given my background with Birch, I think it could have gone a different way. We were never focused on raising money. It was never really a thought. We were focused on scaling the business and doing that profitably and kind of reinvesting profits back into growth. But 
we never seriously looked at raising a big round of capital for the agency. It's a serious risk taking it on from a friend, though. Um, I can't imagine what it would feel like to be in that position. I mean, for starters, I don't have any ideas that I'm looking to get off the ground that would require that sum of money. Um, but yeah, must have really tested that friendship. And especially when you're in situations whereby you're at a month where you can't afford to pay payroll. How, how did that kind of impact upon that relationship you had with that friend? Yeah, listen, fortunately it worked out. So he made many multiples on his cash and he felt really good about that. And that, that you know, adds to our relationship today. I can lean on that. Um, but at the time, it was absolutely a risk. I mean, at, at some point, I think as an entrepreneur, um, you do have to turn the corner. You have to start having conviction in what you can do and where things are headed and taking the appropriate risk along with that. And part of that becomes raising capital. And whether it's a $10 million round you know, from XYZ VC or 250000 from a, a friend or family, um, I take raising money very personally. And I would rather lose my own money than have someone else put their money in and lose their money. Um, so it creates another level of motivation to make sure that you do absolutely everything you can to make it work out. It's interesting. I, I am terrified of ever even hiring someone I know or a friend or a family member. Um, and I always try and keep kind of work and personal life very separate. Whereas Harry, my business partner, and Aaron actually are very, uh, almost see it as a positive if they're able to hire someone they know and trust. Um, what was your policy on that? Did you hire people you knew at various times? It's a very interesting question. So we had early days, we had hired people that we knew in network, friend of a friend, cousin, cousin's uncle, um, just to kind of get going. I would say over time, we did less and less of that. And the main reason being, um, we were truly trying to build the best team in the world for a very specific purpose. And if you, if you know exactly what you're looking for and you're seeking out what I would call like absolute assassins, like a given skill set, um, I don't know who your friends and family are, but that, that doesn't necessarily check <laughs> no the comments. box. No most comment. of them. I'm not sure I'd, 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 not sure I'd yeah, describe any of mine as, as assassins, but I guess it's, Assassin. I guess it's, uh, it, it's the case in something I certainly could be said the, the same for, um, for Jungle, actually. Nick, to your point, um, Jamie, the founder of Jungle, is very much similar to Harry. In the early stages, the entire team was made up really of, of friends and, and friends of friends. And that, that just gives me anxiety, serious anxiety. I mean, I, I'm fortunate enough that I wasn't in that position and, and my friendship with Jamie has grown out of being hired into the business. So I don't have that assassin yeah. dynamic with him. But I think the issue that I think a lot of um, people that I know in business and entrepreneurs have is that you end up through hiring friends, ending up with a bit of a square peg in a round hole because you've, yep. you've got exactly the role that you want them to fulfill. Um, they may not necessarily have the skill set and be that assassin. So you're kind of tr really trying to force them into something that maybe isn't the best thing for them to do. And ultimately I hear of very little success stories that involve an entourage as such who are all absolutely yep. killing it um, in business. I think that's right. I think that's why we ultimately kind of graduated out of that in some ways. I, I will say, 
having now spun up teams, let's say in three or four different instances, myself as a, as a founder, um, the person and the people you are able to get to join you when you're a one person team is very different than a five person team is very different than a 50 person team, very different than a hundred person team. Mm -hmm. So over time, it gets very easy to hire the assassins to come on board because they feel comfortable. Things are stable. Uh, until you get there, you have to get there, right? So there's a lot that happens along the way that I think happens by necessity. And part of that's the, the people side of it. So I think it'd be good to discuss the current kind of phase of your professional life. You went from exiting uh, with the agency, uh, very successful exit, to using your e-commerce direct consumer experience to set up WinBG, which um, essentially is a sort of holding company for kind of owned direct consumer brands. Um, and in order to kind of build out that business, you had to raise a significant amount of capital. I think it's $150 million um, just to kind of launch that business. Um, is that all correct? And where did you start when you're looking at raising that kind of money? Yeah, so we kind of back to the agency. We built it. We sold it. Um, Dylan and I had a had a choice, I would say, three to four years into the business where a lot of agencies were starting to take on work on an equity basis. Okay, you know, your Kylie Cosmetics, uh, pay me X a month and I'll take the rest in some sort of upside or equity. And we made the decision not to do that. And the reason we made the decision not to do that was we wanted to stay very acutely focused on building the best agency that we could and making that business work, exiting that business, and then moving on to the next. And for me, uh, the next became Win Brands Group. Uh, which is what I'm running now as CEO and founder. Uh, WIN stands for what is next. So what technologies, what partners, what brands can we be a part of that are the future of commerce, right? So um, when I got started out, I went back to Chris Birch. And this was an interesting kind of full circle in the fact that once I left working for him, started my own company, sold that company successfully, I think any of the animosity about me leaving or any of that was out the window. And I think he had uh, respect for going out and, and getting that done and doing it kind of on my own. So I pitched him the idea of what I wanted to do. And the, the very simple way to describe that is, you know, at the agency, we were very fortunate to work with all these amazing clients, Kylie and MVMT and Untucket. And those were the success cases, but there was thousands of other cases of brands and products and companies that had a real chance to be successful and failed because of other reasons, not because of the product, not because of the brand, but because, you know, they had a 3PL issue or they had a customer service breakdown or something operational really set them back. Um, so could you not set up a shared team and a shared platform to manage a lot of the business and then be able to go out and partner with entrepreneurs that have built great product businesses and plug them into the platform and truly get a win-win there where they can scale more efficiently, more profitably, and become part of this community and ecosystem and grow forward. And I think, you know, fast forward now a few years that I've been doing this, uh, my original thesis has, has hit the mark in the fact that, you know, there's no... Uh, you don't get any special awards for doing it the hard way. There's no ribbons for doing it on your own, 
right? If in fact I come to you and you're selling uh, watches or shoes or candles and we can come to a business arrangement where you partner with us and we start doing a lot of those operating elements for you and you're able to continue growing your business and ultimately selling it if that's the goal with us, um, you know, becomes a win-win that I think a lot of entrepreneurs are, are excited about. As far as fundraising, uh, we did not raise that much. Uh, there are peers of us, peers of ours, uh, sorry, in the industry that have raised a lot more than we have. We've raised, call it, um, what is it, eight, nine, ten. We have raised ten digits of capital to keep it very broad. Uh, <laughs> a lot of digits, but yeah. not. We have not gotten to eleven digits of. I'm, I can't even work out what that means. <laughs> yeah, get your calculator out, Nick. Um, yeah, super exciting. Um, I guess what is next for for Win BG? I, I mean, I, I I know you guys um, fairly well. You actually also don't know this, Carl. We have a rule where we're not really allowed to talk too much about our agencies on this podcast, which Nick has been treading a fine line of throughout the entirety Here of this episode, go. and I've been chipping in. Um, as well, which is also bad. We can t- discuss this offline, Nick. But um, yeah, we know you guys obviously through uh, work that we're doing on, on, on just one of those brands, Homesick Candles, that you guys um, acquired from BuzzFeed um, a couple of years ago. But I guess w- what's next in the journey um, at Win? So uh, quick correction. I was doing my decimal points again. We've raised <laughs> eight digits of capital. Eight digits of capital not 10 not 11 8 you chuck two digits on yeah it's good that you corrected that well, Jesus. Well, well fundraising used to be celebrated <laughs> as like a win uh not so much anymore and certainly not for us so worth correcting yeah. but with win um you know listen I, I go back to things that i've seen you know in my career and it was such an incredible experience to be with chris as the tory birch business was scaling and if you look at the Tory Birch business, um, the big success they had, very big success early on, was the ba- ballet flat slipper. Uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the ballet flat slipper. I'm wearing some now. <laughs> but my wife, <laughs> uh, a lot of her peers, there was a time in New York City where you had to have this shoe. It was an absolute must-have. It was a literally like a moccasin slipper, but it had a a gold medallion on the toe that was the Tory Burch uh, logo. And long story short, we were selling, the Tory Burch business was selling a million pairs of those shoes a year. That's 200 million in revenue. It's incredible as a hero product for a business like that. And back then, it took almost two years before there was heavy competition coming out with similar products. So if your peer sets were Michael Kors and businesses like that, they came out with similar products, but it took a long period of time to get there. The difference today is that the supply chain and the speed of information is so fast that if at Homesick Candles, I launched a new product that was a smashing success, I can expect that within weeks or max months, there would be competitors coming out with that product. So what that really means is to me... The way to build a very big business is not to have a singular asset or a singular brand, but have a portfolio of several brands that together in aggregate get to a very big number, but that you don't have to force to scale uh, themselves to an enormous number because it's gotten a lot more difficult. So we have, as you mentioned, Homesick Candles is a very special brand. 
we bought that business from BuzzFeed back in 2018. And the reason that I loved that business when I bought it and I still love it today is it happens to be a candle business, but it's a, it's a candle business with the name Homesick. And you have that deep sense of nostalgia. Everyone has some pride about where they're from, what state, what city. For me, kind of small town New York. Um, people get really passionate about that. And I'm the guy that, you know, I read the reviews every day, good or bad. You know, there's the five star and there's the one star. It's really an interesting dichotomy to read both because you can't make everyone happy, but you do learn by reading them. And what I loved about it was, although we are selling candles, we're not competing just on the look and feel and the scent. We have this third leg of really trading off that deep emotional connection to these states and cities and memories. So for me, it was just a no brainer as a first company to buy as a part of this model. And since then we've bought, you know, three other businesses. The last one we bought was a business called Kalo, Q-A-L-O, um, has a tremendous following, you know, folks like LeBron James, Steph Curry, wear this product. It's a, it's a silicone wedding band uh, that you wear when you're working out um, or working outside, things like that. It's more safe. It's more comfortable. So what's next for Win is continue to buy really amazing, incredible brands that will be stronger as a part of our portfolio with us helping them get there than they could ever be on their own. Interesting. And, and an exciting time, um, particularly at the moment when e-commerce and the direct-to-consumer industry and, and and vibe as a whole is is just absolutely killing it because of um yeah this pandemic we happen to 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 be in i think this is actually the first time we've we've referred to it in the sum total of two hours of recording which i think is quite frankly amazing but um yeah it must be a a, a a great time to be in the industry and to be doing what you're doing right now i think it is i mean we've uh we've seen on the e-commerce side we've seen tremendous uptick of people being home Especially think about a brand like Homesick, you know, you're wanting to travel, you're having that urge to want to get out there. So to buy something that kind of fills that void and helps you with that feeling uh, becomes a natural thing. So we're seeing holiday level sales in April and May, which is, you know, unheard of for us. Um, and I think in the industry, you're starting to also have a sense of um, wanting to be part of something bigger. And understanding that doing it on your own, especially if you were doing that unprofitably previously, is probably a tough path to forge on the go forward. So being an M&A focused operation like we are, we definitely have seen you know, more companies coming to us to talk strategically about what a partnership would look like. Interesting. Yeah, it feels like it feels like you're very, very well positioned for the next couple of years. Um, I guess just before we wrap up, um, You've obviously, your kind of professional life's had multiple chapters and uh, ultimately you've been very successful, but it'd be good just to have a sort of introspective um, discussion around kind of at what point have you felt um, kind of happiest and what does kind of success mean to you? You've obviously spent a lot of time with other people who you know, are perceived as being very, very successful, but is someone like Chris Birch incredibly happy or we want to know if you miss the deer farm do you miss chopping up deer is essentially what nick's driving at do you miss being in mcdonald's i will say i love new york city i love the energy i love the vibe it's something that i've always said you know motivates me to get out of bed and and try to do big things um it's been tough to watch new york city really get devastated by this this pandemic 
And frankly, New York City is the last place you want to be when there's contagious germs floating around. Like you just want to be out in the country, open air. Um, so I think there'll be a time where that gets back to, to normal. As far as what success looks like, uh, I had my first baby. Um, Congratulations. Back, back in July. Thank you. Uh, Carrie is boy. Uh, he's a boy, Carrie Reese Widrick. Um, and we're all men in the family. <laughs> all men. <laughs> all assassins. Yeah, this is the first uh, <laughs> male on my side of our direct lineage. So that was that was also fun. Um, but listen, you know, family is the most important. And I, I see that now more than ever. I've been really fortunate. You know, I met my wife, I guess, five, six, seven years ago. We've been married three, four years. Um, had our first child. Plan on doing, you know, more of that. Knock on wood if things work out. Um but, you know, this has also been an interesting time via COVID to have some of that introspection on what's, what's important. And just being home these last three months and working from home, I was able to see my baby boy's first crawl, first words, first teeth coming in, like things that I probably would have been out working and, and likely missed. Uh, so that's been incredible. And if I take that back to the Birch days, I will say I saw everything, you know, true excess people that had made tens and tens of billions of dollars. Um, and at some point, you know, all of that is, is irrelevant unless you have a strong family life. And I always had the most respect uh, and the most awe for people that were able to accomplish really great things professionally but also have a really sound, you know, home and family life. And I think that's, that's part of the balance that becomes difficult to do. Um, so, you know, that, that is something that I would aspire to, to really keep in focus. And my wife does a great job of, of leveling me out. I think, you know, maybe before um, I met her and kind of got down that path, uh, after leaving Chris and kind of leaving that environment and you know, operating my own business and feeling that weight on my shoulders. Um, I probably got a little bit too singularly focused on, on business and didn't have enough of a rounding out of my, my life. And now that I see the other side of it with the family, um, you know, that's the priority. Cause I think when you look back and you're 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, uh, truly all that matters is the family and, and the kids and, you know, making sure that you can keep those things as a, as a great relationship. What a lovely sentiment to end on. Yeah, I was going to say, what a great place to wrap up. I do miss the deer. Uh, have you ever seen the um, uh, Tommy Boy where they do the, the cow tipping? Yes, I have. Uh, you yeah, so that's deer? literally, yeah, we don't, we don't tip deer, we don't tip cows, but upstate it's like all dairy farms, a tremendous amount of farms. Like that should be the vibe you would think of with, with upstate. I am headed upstate in a few weeks. Um, there's a small lake up there called Lake Bonaparte that uh, we you know have gone to in, in summers past and go to now. And I love it up there. I, I'm not sure I could live there full time after having that energy of New York City. Uh, I will say if the world turns into a continuous pandemic where this is happening over and over and over, uh, there's no better place to be. They literally had 12 cases of COVID total in the entire county. Like they've been able to really keep it, you know, very tight. So we're looked at as the outsiders coming in. They're like, hey, make sure these guys uh, quarantine. These are city folk. Um, but it's, it is gorgeous up there. I do love visiting and going home. I just don't know if I could do it for, for years at a time. Hmm. Well, make sure if you do go up there, 
um, please do send us some venison. Venison, <laughs> venison <laughs> is a very under um, appreciated meat, in my opinion. I love venison. Unlike turkey, which everyone in America loves turkey for some reason. Turkey's dry. It's not interesting. Venison, very delicious. That sweet Bambi. Right. Well, I I feel like we could (laughs) chat forever, but we are going to have to wrap this up. So, Kyle, thanks so much for coming on. Um, Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Love what you're doing. Love how it's a fun vibe. Not too business, but also covering all the main topics. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Tom, wrap. I'm serious. Move to a new city. We're moving to New York. I, yeah, I should probably buy a place in the city first. Are you here for business or pleasure? Hopefully both. <laughs>